Well, I'll try to talk over the thunder and the downpour. But tonight we're looking at Knowing God, chapter 16, which is on the goodness and the severity of God. And he draws this theme for this chapter from Paul's words in Romans eleven twenty-two, where he is writing to the, the church at Rome, which is composed of a mixture probably of Jews and Gentiles, but probably predominantly Gentiles who have come into the faith. And throughout Romans 9 through chapter 11, Paul has been wrestling with the question of how the Jews and Gentiles fit together in the saving plan of God. And Romans 9 through 11 kind of walks us through how God in his sovereign wisdom brought a hardening to the nation of Israel in which they rejected their Messiah. But that hardening led to the fullness of the gospel and grace going out to the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles were brought into the faith. Um, but then Paul turns around and says, but, and through you, God's going to use you to provoke the Israelites to jealousy and they will come back in. So there will, all Israel will be saved. He says in Romans 11, but specifically to the Gentiles in Romans eleven twenty two, he's warning them against pride. Uh, and the pride of them being included in Christ while Jews excluded because of their unbelief. And so he says, be careful to, to walk humbly before God. And he says, consider therefore the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you who believe, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So it's a it's a warning. It's an encouragement, but also a warning, uh, reminding them that the God whom they worship is a good God, but also a God of judgment. And so he draws those two together, those two themes together in our chapter tonight. One of the things he talks about in the opening part of the chapter is what he calls Santa Claus theology, um, which is this idea that... Um, God is just like a, a, a Santa Claus in the sky who likes to give good gifts to everybody. And it, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. There's just kind of this goodwill, general benevolence to all. And he says, really, there's a lot of confusion in our day regarding God and the doctrine of God. And he attributes that modern confusion to several different things in the chapter one of the things he points to is what he calls private religious feelings or uh, private religious hunches or, or sentiments about God instead of God's word. So he says one of the problems in our day is that we, we tend to base our concept of God, our theology on what we feel or what we think instead of what is rightly revealed for us in God's word. So he says that's one of the problems that has led to confusion about God. But he also says there is out in the world, this mistaken notion that all religions are equal. And so religions, there are all these different religions and, you know, they're probably all just equal and we can learn from each of them. And he, so he says, because of that, there have been some pagan influences that have made its way into uh, Christianity and people's thoughts about who God is. And so even some Christians who believe God can be influenced by some of these pagan thoughts. 
from other religions. So there's confusion about who God is. He also says one of the reasons why there's confusion about who God is is because of our failure to recognize our own sinfulness. So, and we've talked about this before, walking through this book, that um, when we talked about the holiness of God or the judgment of God, that in general, we as human beings have a, a small view of our own sin uh, and an, an inflated view of ourselves. We don't see our sin as bad as it really is. We see ourselves as better than we really are. And that makes God smaller. So we make ourselves bigger, but we make God smaller. And so when we fail to recognize our own sinfulness, it distorts our view of God and our attitude towards him. He says there's also this tendency in our, in our modern world to divide God's attributes from one another. And this is kind of where he's been driving toward. There's this tendency to divide God's attributes from one another. For example, to disassociate God's goodness from his severity. And when we were talking about the love of God in this chat in this book, we, we noted that our culture the world at large likes to focus on the love of God. But even in that, it's a distorted view of the love of God because it's their own version of it. It's kind of like their Santa Claus theology of the love of God. All the while excluding and ruling out any judgment or wrath or what he talks about in this chapter, severity. So our, our modern world likes to take the attributes of God and think of them separately divide them and focus on the love of God, but ignoring his justice. But he says we can't do that because our God is one. Our, our God is unified in all that he is. All of his attributes are, are harmoniously a part of who he is as God. So he says we can't separate his goodness from his severity. It, it's who God is. So he says when, because of all of these things, our, you know, an inflated view of ourselves, uh, our own private sentiments and feelings, mixture of all these pagan ideas uh, leads to a false idea of God. And so it, to reject all ideas of divine wrath and judgment and to assume that God's character misrepresented, he says, forsooth. In other words, it is not misrepresented in the Bible, but this is what people think. That God's character is misrepresented in many parts of the Bible is really one of indulgent benevolence without any severity is the rule rather than the exception among ordinary folk today. In other words, the general concept of God out there in the world, and even by people that would profess to be Christians, a general notion of God is all goodness, all love, no severity, no judgment, which is what he calls a Santa Claus theology. So what are the elements of the Santa Claus theology? No judgment, no severity in God, no punishment. So the idea of a, a, an eternal judgment, condemnation on the final judgment day, that's so far outside their thinking. God would never send anyone to hell. So no judgment or severity. Uh, kind of a, a, a belief in a generic benevolence to all, regardless of obedience to God. So in other words, regardless of whether you're a Christian, regardless of whether you, uh, you know, seek to follow the ways of God or not, 
the Santa Claus theology basically just treats everybody the same and God's just good to everybody. And this kind of grandfatherly type, Santa Claus type, who's just good and, and caring and loving. Well, the problem with this theology is that if this is our view of God, there's no need for the atonement. So the only need for an atonement from a biblical perspective is if there's a judgment, right? If God is just generally good to all and and everybody's going to go to heaven and kind of a universalism, everybody's going to get there eventually. Um, You know, you might take different paths. You might go the path of Buddhism or Islam or Christianity. Everybody's going to get there. God is good, kind of a universalism. And God doesn't judge anybody. If that's the view, then why did Christ die? What, what was the need for the atonement of Christ? Well, liberal theology has an answer for that. Their answer is the cross of Christ isn't really about substitutionary atonement. So you get all these liberal ideas about what the cross of Christ was really about. None of it has anything to do with substitution for our sins to uh, assuage or propitiate the wrath of God. So they'll talk about Christ being a, a good moral example an example of love, of self-sacrifice. They'll talk about Christ, um, you know, winning the victory over temptation, over the devil, um, over the forces of evil. Uh, All of these different views of the atonement, but none of them about sin or about the wrath of God. And so they recognize the problem. So what they do is they redefine atonement to rule out the need for substitution to save us, to rescue us from the judgment of God. But this kind of Santa Claus theology in which God is just good and loving and, and never ha- does any judgment, no, no severity in God at all, it also raises another problem, and that is the problem of evil. If God is good, why is there all this evil in the world? And I don't know if you remember this. This has been a while back now. Um, when we went through the book by Tim Keller, um, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he dealt with this issue that for a long time in the history of the world, there was no such thing in philosophy as the problem of evil. And even J.I. Packer in this chapter brings that up when he says, really, this, the problem of evil arose when this concept of God became popular that if God is all good and there's no severity, then why is there all this hardship in the world? Why all this difficulty? Because, uh, you know, uh, the curse on the world, death, uh, catastrophes, disasters, sickness, all of this makes no sense if God is, is not judging through those things. So if God is just all good and there's no judgment, no severity in God, then what do we do with all this evil in the world? And so that raised this apologetic problem that Christians felt the need to have to defend when really the problem at the root of it is a misconception of who God is. He says before really the 19th century, um, when liberalism really came into its own, late 18th century, early 19th century, um, we really had no problem of evil. 
because we understood that God was a God of love, but also a God of wrath and judgment. So this Santa Claus theology that has now pervaded our modern world gives rise to this problem of evil. So what's the liberal solution? They got a solution for this too. Here's their solution. God's not omnipotent. God can't do anything about it. God's not omniscient. He doesn't know what's going to happen ahead of time. So he can't do anything about it. So, and I've read Christian theologians who make the argument that God did not know that a hurricane was going to hit this area and therefore couldn't do anything about it. This is, that's what happens when you have to come up with a theology that arises out of a false notion of a, a God who is all benevolence and no severity. So they end up twisting the scripture and twisting who God is in order to try to solve the problems that their own theology has created. So we are left then with a kind God who means well, but cannot always insulate his children from trouble and grief. When trouble comes, therefore, there is nothing to do but grin and bear it. In this way, by an ironic paradox, faith in a God who is all goodness and no severity tends to confirm men in a fatalistic and pessimistic attitude to life. It's interesting, isn't it? So you, you believe God's all good and no severity, but then you end up not understanding why all this hardship is in the world. And it leads you to kind of a pessimistic, fatalistic attitude to life. So those are not good solutions, but there is a true solution. And the true solution comes from the scriptures, which uh, teaches us to not separate the severity of God from his goodness, but to view them together, to view them in harmony with each other. So associating God's goodness and severity back together from the truth of scripture. And so that's what he wants us to do in the rest of the chapter. So he talks about God's goodness, which he defines as the moral qualities of God, such as his perfection, generosity, mercy, grace, and love. These attributes of God that have their expression toward us as his creatures in goodwill and mercy and grace. Really, the the classic expression of the goodness of God comes from himself in Exodus 33 and 34 when he reveals it to Moses. He says to Moses, I'm going to cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That is a core attribute of God's goodness. And then he further describes it for Moses in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. When he passed in front of Moses, when he said, I'm going to make all my goodness pass over you. This is what he said. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. All those things are a part of the goodness of God. Love, forgiving sin, generous and mercy, slow to anger. But notice this, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. He says, here's my goodness. 
And in the midst of that definition of goodness is also God's severity for those who disobey. So he says God's truthfulness. Here's some other aspects of God's goodness. God's truthfulness and trustworthiness, his unfailing justice and wisdom, his tenderness, forbearance, and entire adequacy to all who penitently seek his help, his noble kindness in offering believers the exalted destiny of fellowship with him in holiness and love. These things together make up God's goodness in the overall sense of the sum total of his revealed excellences. So all everything that is good about God that is on display and expressed toward us as his creatures could be described as God's goodness. And he says really at the core of it, at the, at the heart of God's goodness is generosity, which he says is a disposition to give to others in a way which has no mercenary motive and is not limited by what the recipients deserve, but consistently goes beyond it. What does he mean by a mercenary motive? Basically, it's, it's a selfish motive in which you're doing something to get something. So you, you do something good for somebody, but there's always in your mind the motive of something back in return. God has no mercenary motive when it comes to his goodness and generosity. He doesn't expect anything in return because there's nothing we can give to God that would repay it. So he gives not expecting something back. He gives because he wants to give. And he gives not in what people deserve, but really beyond what they deserve, better than what they deserve. And so he suggests that the, gen- the generosity of God is really the focal point of God's moral perfection and goodness, which is really grace. Grace is every act of divine generosity of whatever kind that God gives to people who don't deserve it. And he says there are really two kinds of this generosity or grace. There's a common grace, which is God's care over everything in this world. So there's a common generosity, a common goodness to all that, that flows to the whole world, in which, as Paul says in Acts 17, he gives life and breath and everything else to us. And so in Psalm 145, 9, we read, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. That's all inclusive, isn't it? The whole world. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. And Acts 14 says, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. These are all general acts of God's goodness to all whether or not you are a believer in Christ or not. But then there's also the special grace of God. And the special grace of God is one in which we as God's people thank God, rejoice in him for what he has done specially toward those whom he has redeemed. And so in Psalm 106, we read, Praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? When verse 2 says the mighty acts of the Lord, that has in mind God's redemptive acts. 
that he did for Israel in bringing them out of bondage in Egypt, his, his salvation. Psalm 86.5, You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. That's an aspect of God's special grace, saving grace. Give thanks to the Lord, for he, he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands, from the east and the west, from the north and the south. That's God's saving grace. So God's common grace is his general goodness to all. His saving grace is God's special goodness, care, love that he has given to to people in redeeming them, rescuing them from their sin and making them his own treasured possession. So God's goodness, both commonly and specially in salvation, but together with God's goodness is closely bound up with his severity. How so? Well, he says the severity of God in Romans eleven twenty two is described as God's cutting off, letting go of the disobedient. It is God's decisive withdrawal of his goodness from those who have spurned it. So do you see the relationship then between goodness and severity? God offers goodness, but to those who reject it is severity. So in a sense, severity is the other side of the coin of God's goodness. He is abounding in love. We saw in Exodus 34, but he also does not leave the guilty unpunished. It's both a part of God's harmonious character. He says in Romans 11, the principle which Paul is applying here is that behind every display of divine goodness stands a threat of severity in judgment if that goodness is scorned. If we do not let it draw us to God in gratitude and response of love, we have only ourselves to blame when God turns against us. So God's goodness is proclaimed, it's preached in the gospel, it's offered to those who reject his severity, the wrath of God. And God is patient, even in that display of severity. One of the things that we see all throughout scripture, it's a common theme, is that God calls people to obedience, he calls them to faith, he calls them to respond to his word. When they don't, he threatens judgment. We see this all the time in Israel, uh, in the Old Testament. He says, turn back to me, repent. If you do not, I will judge you. But oftentimes, even in the stories of the Old Testament, we can see God having patience. And even with Ahab, as sinful a, a king as he was, God puts off the full brunt of judgment till, after, till the next generation. So God is, is patient in his severity. He is slow to anger and long-suffering. That is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. And we read about it in the New Testament as well. Uh, Peter says, To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. He's saying while that whole time that Noah was building the ark was an opportunity to repent. And God was being patient. He was being long-suffering. But when that goodness was spurned, turned away, 
severity came. Peter also says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, in this whole passage of 2 Peter 3, Peter is dealing with uh, skeptics, scoffers who say, Jesus said he's coming back. Where is he? Where, where is Jesus' return? And, and Peter, through the whole passage, is saying, God's not slow. God's timing is not off. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. So don't measure your calendar by God's calendar. God is, why has Jesus not come back yet? Peter's answer is, he's being patient. He's being patient. He's being long-suffering. And that time of patience and long-suffering is an open window for repentance to respond to God's goodness. But for those who do not respond to God's goodness, severity. So what is our response then? He closes the chapter with our response. And he says really three, three main responses. One, appreciate the goodness of God. Remind ourselves how good God has been to us by counting our blessings, by, by not taking God's gifts for granted. How many of us do this? Oh, every day, right? Every day. We, we pause to pray, to thank God. At meals, we pause to thank God. But we're, we have so much more to be thankful for than we ever realize. And as the, as the hymn goes, count your blessings, name, name them one by one. You can't even do that. It's impossible. Because that would, that would mean you would have to be able to completely, infinitely, omnisciently know all the blessings that God is do for, doing for you at every moment. You couldn't do it. But oftentimes we live our lives uh, taking God's kindness to us for granted. And he reminds us not to do that. But to have a heart of thankfulness for God's goodness. He says also appreciate the patience of God in which there are times when we deserve God's discipline, but he's been patient with us. He's been forbearant with us. So marvel at that. Marvel at his patience with you. And then also then seek grace to imitate that in our dealings with others. God is patient with us. We should be patient with others. And he also adds to that to strive to not try the patience of God. But marvel at it, that God has been patient with us and seek to model that in the way you relate to other people. And thirdly, he says, appreciate the discipline of God. And he draws that, this application out in two ways. One is for the unbeliever. Quoting from George Whitfield, he says, the, the, the harsh, severe hand of God may be the thorns in your bed that awaken you from the sleep of spiritual death and lead you to repentance. And so sometimes God's severity, his harshness, may be what he is using in somebody's life to awaken their hearts to faith. And then for us who believe, we have a loving father who disciplines us. And in that discipline, he is doing it in love, guiding us into holiness and helping us, causing us to continue in his goodness. And so the writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 12, verse 5, 
And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Why? Because he's doing it in love. It is the relationship of a father to a child. So uh, appreciate the discipline of God. 